I enjoy taking communion with you guys. That is one of my favorite things. And I want you to, to know that not only do we not think anything's magical about those elements, the very first time I ever took communion as a real believer in Jesus, not just a churchgoer, but a real believer in Jesus, was with Matthew. He was 17 and I was 18. It was the middle of the night. We were worshiping God in my parents' living room. We wanted to renew our covenant with him because it had been about a week and we felt needed to be closer. And we did it with French bread and orange juice. <laughs> you couldn't get any further biblically off than that. And I felt the presence of God there. Since then, I've refused to argue about methods and modes of baptism, about communion, and various pronunciations of words. It's really kind of ridiculous. God is after a complete change in a human being's heart. Amen. 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 And if I got everything else wrong, that part was right. And uh, he's honored it ever since. It's Potluck Sunday. I'm glad you're here for that. We're going to get our message going this morning. It is February 1st. And uh, don't be alarmed. Rent's not due here today. Our message is going to be the super race. Y'all ever heard that term? Not super races in lots of cars. Super races in some genetically superior group of people. It's an amazing thing. Our story this morning is going to start in Genesis 3, if you'd like to turn there. Tell me when you get to Genesis 3. I'm going to begin to summarize this for you. In Genesis 3, something happens. We see for the first time that man was created with a profound need. The profound need was that he would rely upon his God for all information about what was good and evil. There existed another source. But God wanted man to rely on him for the choices between what was good and bad. Because the designer designed us in such a way that he knew if we were completely self-sufficient in those areas, it would not be good for us. Man breaks this tradition with God, stops his walking with God, stops his friendship with God in the cool of the day by basically glorifying himself. When he rejects God as his source of knowledge for what is good and evil and takes it upon himself, that is self-glorification. And you need to understand that when there is a break between God and man, because man has elevated himself, the logical progression of things will always be that there is a break between man and man. See, when a man is not right with God, he cannot be right with his fellow man. So this is the problem in our marriages. This is the problem in our children rearing. This is the problem in every relationship between two individuals. Somebody or both, likely, are not quite right with God. Because when we are completely submitted to Him, He makes those other details work out. And it usually involves not self-glorifying, but depreciating yourself, esteeming someone else's needs higher. The problems in mankind really begin as man glorifies himself to a godlike status. We don't like to think about it in those terms. We don't tend to view ourselves as idolatrous, but when you know the good that you should do and choose not to do it, you have become a god, a lord to yourself. And I want you to understand, those of you especially raised in the church, you can be an absolute idolater and be confessing Romans 10, 9, and 10 every moment of the day. You can say Jesus is Lord with your mouth and proclaim it all over the place, but if your actions deny Him, He is not your owner and controller. It is propaganda out of your mouth so that you will feel good about yourself. When He is your owner and controller, you are no longer glorifying your will above His. You are broken when sin occurs and you are desirous of His will in your life. I know exactly what it is to live a life of a hypocrite. Because when my parents began to get right with God and search for churches to go to, I learned all of the right phrases. 
And intellectually, I ascended to all of those principles. But there was never at any time fruit on the tree that looked, smelled, or tasted like a Christian. But I could quote his lordship on a regular basis. I find much of American Christianity to be in this shape, and it is very sad. This is not our topic today, but we need to understand the heart of all of our problems as we covered Wednesday night have to do with choosing life or death based on obedience or ignoring his word. You get one or the other. His word is pregnant with both always. Life and prosperity or death and destruction. And it is all based on your reaction to the same catalyst. The good news is, that's very simple. The bad news is, we have a predisposition to choosing destruction. Some of you can see it clearly in your friends and family. Some of you that have looked into the mirror deeply, the mirror of God's word can see it in yourself. We have destructive tendencies. And yet in man, there is always a hope for salvation. But many times what we're looking for to save us has no power to save. As we think about this, I'm actually going to read to you from Genesis 6. The break with God and man has produced a break with man and man. The self-glorification of human beings so that they do what they want to do. And now we actually have an outside force acting in Genesis 6. There is a dangerous mixture when men begin to glorify themselves and heavenly rebellious powers begin to work in the affairs of men. We see in Genesis 6, it starts with the first verse, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. This word sons of God is sons of Elohim. Every other place in all of the word that this phrase occurs, it's rendered angels. I see no reason that it should be rendered anything other than that here, except an aversion to the supernatural. The sons of God or angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Most Bible scholars think that from the time angels began defecting, in cohabitating with women, it was 120 years to the flood. The Nephilim, or Nephilim if you prefer. Nephilim is a word that means the fallen ones. The fallen ones were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were heroes of old, men of renown. Now, you can be in church your whole life long and nobody read you these verses. And even if you cover them in Bible school, it's under hushed tones with several prevailing theories to choose from, like a multiple choice. I just want to submit to you this morning the idea that a Greek historian named Hesiod in 700 B.C., when describing the Greek pantheon, says that the Greek pantheon came into being when the gods came to the earth and cohabitated with women. Now we're not quoting Hesiod as authoritative. What I'm telling you, what I'm introducing is the idea that the Bible is authoritative, that what it says is the truth, and that other his historians have a measure of it, they've perverted it, but even in their perverted works, they attest to the truth. So in the very first few chapters of Genesis, we have men that are being self-glorified. They're being raised up. We covered this last week in the idea of an imperial man. Men were looking for a human being who was better than the average human being. Somebody who had actual divine qualities. These are the Caesars and the, the, the Czars and the Pharaohs and those people of their day. And then something else began to happen. A demonic idea that goes all the way back to Genesis 6. Not just that the human race could be corrupted which is usually how I see this verse, but also that there is a super race among us. Some men are inherently better than other men. Some men, not only one glorified leader, but a race of men of renown. Because people are lost, if you were looking for a race of men that were better than other men, you look towards genetics. Who's taller? Who's bigger? Who's faster? So all the emphasis on Nephilim is placed upon giant men. 
And I understand. The sons of Anak and all of those groups, the Rephaites, they were definitely giants. And yet, those sound like old mythological stories, don't they? I mean, you believe them, but it's hard to understand how something like that could happen in our day and time. Turn with me to Genesis 46. Tell me when you're there. Y'all already quiet this morning because I talk so much I can give you a chance to respond, huh? I'm going to get into that southern preaching thing where I solicit amens, you know, with a deep breath between each one. <gasps> Amen! <laughs> Amen! There are some pastors that preach. I mean, they're awesome. But because of some of those idiosyncrasies, I can't listen. I have to get their works in writing. Which always makes me wonder, what do I do that makes it hard for you to listen? <laughs> I provided coffee. That's as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs> All right. Are you in Genesis 46? Yes. yes. I want you to hear this. 46, 34. 33. When Pharaoh calls on you and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen. For all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. You mean there was class warfare in ancient Egypt? Not only was there class warfare, I don't know how many of you know this, but Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's had a unique marriage opportunity. I mean, they didn't have to look all over the earth for their wives. They didn't have to look any further than their own home. Pharaoh's always married their sisters. Yeah, she's my sister. How gross is that? And what was the reasoning for this? Pharaoh is God incarnate on earth. And divinity can only marry divinity. And the only thing close was sister. And the group of people that these Egyptians looked down on the most in life were shepherds. Tears of society. A super race ruling the Pharaoh and his sister and their progenitry. And a group of people that were lower than all others. And where did God put His people? In the land of the people lower than all others. This has gone on quite some time. And as this happens, as you have Egyptian godmen and Jewish shepherds, a dehumanization starts to occur. Because if you really are divine, I mean, just say that, divine, godlike, what's really right and wrong? I mean, you choose what's right and wrong, huh? Isn't that where self-glorification ultimately takes you? God says don't, you say, hmm, but I think I'm going to. Aren't we then choosing what is right and wrong, regardless of any arbitrary standard? God's to ourselves? Well, the epitome of this is the leaders that the world has raised up for themselves, like Pharaoh. And as this happens, if you are so very good to enhance your divinity, there is usually a group of people that needs to be so very bad. You need to set yourself as juxtaposed to someone else. In this case, shepherds. This allows you to look at them as a different class of people. Some of you who grew up in the South during turbulent years are familiar with the kind of lies that get told. That group is subhuman. I heard that as a little boy, that a group of people was subhuman, that if evolution was true, it had to apply to that group of people. Inferences were made about facial features. Inferences were made about skin color, about hair. Bible was used to justify it sometimes. Made it easier to justify doing whatever you want to a group of people, doesn't it? If they're so very different from you, and you are divine, gods to yourself, then you can do whatever you want. Look at Exodus 2. Happens this way, Exodus 1. There's going to be a little morsel of meat for you here, I promise. Our message this morning is not about social change. We're examining the God of history to find out about history's God. Charlotte's there. Where are the rest of you? You've got to talk to me this morning. If I leave, the service just gets awkward. You ready? Uh, Exodus 1, we're going to start in the 8th verse. The new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. 
Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave this country. Why, uh, why would the Israelites want to go to war with the Egyptians? What do you want to do when you're oppressed? If every day you wake up and somebody slaps you on the face, how many days are you going to say, thank you, sir, may I have another, before you wake up swinging? Yeah, I, I personally observe this on both ends of the spectrum now that I think about it. Human beings can only be pushed so far before a fight or flight instinct kicks in. The most nerdly child on earth who has the least physical prowess will only be slapped so many times before he will make an attempt at you. That's just human nature. So what is it that the gods of this world are really worried about? If that slave class understands that they have power, we'll be in trouble. We need to keep them discouraged, uneducated, oppressed, pushed down so that nobody will know they have power. Let's pull this out of the social realm for a moment so that your minds aren't running in a hundred different ways. How does this work spiritually? Is there a bully who has claimed godlike status in the spiritual world? He's no god at all, but he's claimed it. He is scared to death. You will find out you are at war with him. Because if you knew that you were at war with him, you have the power to do something about his godlike status. It's called rebellion against this world system. Our book encourages it. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed any longer. This is the cry of people throwing off change, saying, No, I will not. There's the spiritual message in this. But let's go back to the people group for a minute. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. You want the people to stay in submission to your oppression? Push them so hard they never have a chance to breathe. Has nobody ever been there spiritually? When you felt like you were reaping the whirlwind, everywhere you turned was a giant slap in the face for your sin, and it made you feel worse and worse and worse, till walking through the doors of a church felt like the last thing on earth you would ever want to do. Why do you think the devil puts you in that position? Because if you walk through the doors of a church, there is a new hope in your life, and he knows it. And once you become informed, you become dangerous to his kingdom and his facade. Once you poke holes in his lies, you have a chance to spread a different kingdom. So the people are here. They're being mistreated. Forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses and the store cities of Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor, brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. I've gotten in trouble several times because I was not raised in church. There are occasions when my language can be abrasive. I haven't learned all the neat theological terms. I tend to talk in terms of absolutes. It's not unusual for me at a baby dedication to tell two parents, if you don't raise your children well, you might be sending them to hell. I know another pastor would not do that. I also would do whatever it took to help those two parents raise their children right, and other pastors won't do that. Used them ruthlessly. Does anybody want to be in a category of people that were used ruthlessly? Does that bring to term any in, in, bring to your mind any graphic imagery if somebody used you ruthlessly? I won't push that any further, but I want you to understand there is a deeper meaning in that text. This means that you were assaulted on every level of your daily life in the hopes that you would never realize that you had any worth. This is exactly what the devil does to people. He assaults you on every level of your life so that you will never understand who you are in Christ if you choose to be what God's called you to be. Amazing thing happens though. 
The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. When could you ever get to a place in human history where women would kill their children? Surely this kind of thing only happened a long time ago. Before something like this happens, you have to dehumanize the victim. Mm -hmm. Nobody kills something that looks and acts like them. You kill something that is distinct from you, mm -hmm. less than you, in some way different than you. And this is the devil's tactic, to glorify your image of yourself to the point where Cain will kill Abel. Because gosh darn it, he's just better than Abel. And why does Abel get all the favor? I... I deserve it. And this is in the hearts of human beings. And it breaks the heart of God. And it shows up in various, literally, unsundry ways. But something happens. <coughs> the midwives, however, by the way, why do you think they wanted to kill the boys and let the girls live? Yeah, goes back to that other phrase. The midwives, however, feared God. Here, they listen to these powerful words. They feared God and did not do. They did not do. Our turning points in our life come from a place where we simply stand up and say to the devil, I will not do it. Not anymore. You may have gotten me yesterday or the day before, but right now, here and now, I rebel. I will not be conformed to your image anymore. And when you do not do, something happens. God begins to bless you. Shifra and Pua, they ended up with families of their own because God was watching. There is a lie on the earth that self-glorified emperors can have super races. And for this lie to work, what needs to happen is the emperor needs to stand aloof in an unapproachable place where you won't see that he has flaws. No, I'm not talking about a church. I was actually talking about empires of the world. <laughs> I, people who have seats in the United Nations. I'm still not talking about a church. People that have armies in their own cities on certain numbers of hills. Are we talking about churches or nations? It's interesting. Who can really tell? For this to work, you have to stand aloof in your leadership so nobody can criticize you or see your flaws. You need to begin to promise the populace that they're better than other people. This empowers them. And it empowers them for change in the world. It empowers them to believe that they can do something better with their lives and the world around them. And somebody needs to be the bad guy. We have to have a group of people to blame everything on. It just so happens throughout history that tends to be the Jews. Now why one people group on all of the planet, out of all the families of nations, would one people group be picked out as the kicking boy of all nations? It's an amazing situation. I just talked to you about Egypt. Would you think that Egypt would have evolved from 1600 B.C. to, say, 40, 50 B.C., time of Cleopatra? Something would be different. No, Cleopatra was married to two brothers in her lifetime. In addition to her two brothers that she was married, one of them was 11. Nice, huh? She also managed to cohabitate with Pompey's son because Pompey was the ruler in Rome and ruler of the Western world. And when he fell out of power, she managed to find uh, Julius Caesar. And he was uh, God on earth people thought. And he ruled the Western world and her the Eastern world, so what a couple they were. But the problem is, is you know, somebody killed Caesar. Those that he saved uh, killed him, he said. And so uh, there was a general named Antony. And Miss Cleopatra, she shacked up with Antony. It's amazing how this one woman got around. Antony, poor guy, you know, Antony's off fighting uh, a war, and uh, with a man named Augustus, and it's not going well. So Cleopatra gets the idea, you know, Mr. Antony, he's not going to win. 
She spread the report that she committed suicide. Antony heard it. He was grieved that the love of his life killed herself. So he killed himself. And then Cleopatra approached Augustus and tried to shack up with him. During this time period, and the reason that I brought this up, an amazing thing happens. Cleopatra wanted all of the Egyptians to understand how special she was, how the queen of the east and the god of the west were uniting to rule the world, and they had produced a son. His name was Caesarian. And Caesarian was considered the son of the gods. So all over Egypt, there began to be motifs painted on temples everywhere. They still exist today. And it was of a woman with a halo on her head holding a baby in her arms who was the son of God. But that wasn't enough. You know what she had to do the very same year she did that? Anybody want to guess? That's right. Issue a proclamation that all Jews in Egypt should be killed. Now why is it that when God-like people ascend to super God-like status and begin to gather a race around themselves of superhumans, they need to always throw out the lowest class of their society in their eyes. And it just keeps happening to be the Jews. Could it be that Satan's at work to destroy a promise of a superhuman Christ and a special race of people that really will rule the earth? Could it be that we are so blind that when we read history and we see regime after regime after regime doing the same thing, we're slow to catch on? We don't have time to tell you about the Babylonian head of gold and their motivation and treatment of the Jews. The next kingdom to rule the world was the Medo-Persian. How about Mr. Haman's attempt to commit genocide on all Jews everywhere because of their customs? To this point, Israel will not even say the word Haman without stomping their feet. We don't have time to tell you about his motivations. It's written in your Bible. You can find it. I previously mentioned Hesiod, Greek empires the next. I told you that Hesiod believed that the Greeks were ruled by gods among us because the gods had come down and slept with, in his mind, Greek women and created super race. By the way, we put Hercules on our kids' lunchboxes. He's one of those. It's what the Bible would call the Nephilim if, in fact, he was not myth. I think as we think about these, it probably would be best for me to emphasize just one more ancient kingdom. The one that Jesus was born into. See, as we come to Rome, we need to suffice it to say that every major world power has both a glorified ruler and a race that is a super race followed by enormous anti-Semitic movements. What an interesting word, anti-Semitic. What does Semitic mean? Shem. Shemetic. There was one boy off of the ark that was promised something. And it seems that his brothers of the world were not happy about him receiving a promise. Does that take us back to Genesis 3 with a break between God and man and Genesis 4, a break between man and man? See, we can't tolerate God's blessings in someone else's life because, gosh darn it, we deserve that. Aren't we as good as them? Aren't we better? You can see it in the people of God that have written their lives as examples for us. Miriam and Aaron. Does God only speak through Moses? Does he not speak through me? And what did God do? He spit leprosy in the woman's face. It's in all of us. We just need to identify it and destroy it. There's a nature we're supposed to be dead to. With Rome, Augustus, whose name I actually found the Roman definition of Augustus, I've been telling you for a long time it meant the August one, the revered one, and it does, but the actual way that they say it is worthy of reverence and worship. When they named the man, they named him someone who is worthy of reverence and worship. He went to the Jewish people. He said, if you want to stay in power, you're going to have to cede your right to capital punishment. We all know that. Those who've been in church a while know that. You know what you may not have known? The Sadducees agreed to use their influence on the Levitical priesthood to have a sacrifice made every year for the emperor's welfare at the temple of God. Coins were issued calling him the divine son of God. And I need to read you something because this goes to the heart of the matter. Uh, 
This comes from a book called Christ and the Caesars. And it starts with this phrase. From this time, Rome was the center of the world. We're talking about Augustus' rule. The emperor was the judge of nations. From Britain to India, men listened to his words. After the successful issue of the Parthenian problem, the emperor concentrated his strength on domestic affairs. He's ascended to power. Now let's watch what he does at home. Laws affecting marriage and children were passed in order to call a halt to the serious delusion of the original Roman people and to establish a basis for a powerful development of a unique, superior, imperial race. Guess what they did next? Anybody want to guess? They threw the Jews out of Rome. In the 14 years of reconstruction after Actium, the Roman people were not slow to show its gratitude to its emperor. The priests accepted the conqueror of Cleopatra as one of the state gods and addressed him in traditional prayers as the founder of a new race of gods. The Senate gave him a wreath of oak leaves, the so-called citizen's crown, for saving citizens from mortal danger. As if that were not enough, the Roman Parliament gave him the divine title of Augustus, which raised him to Zeus incarnate, the worshipful ruler above mere human stature. It is in human nature to exalt leaders. Leaders that are different from us. They must be different, because if they weren't different, they would have the same problems I have and there would be no hope. So we're going to stand far enough away that we think that they are glorified in some way. And then, by following their lead, it makes us better than everybody else too. The church of I'm better than you. Except it's not always churches. I just pick on the family of God first usually. An amazing thing has happened whether we are talking about Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, or Romans, or our churches. In this process, it has always resulted in the persecution of a specific group of people, the Jewish people. And I wonder why that is. Could there be a biblical promise about a God-like human being coming from a race of people that had a special blessing for that race of people? That's the story of this book. And it's been corrupted throughout history, and they are hated. As the young people say, we hate on them. <laughs> why? Why? Oh, it goes back to the garden. It's self-glorification. Are they any better than me? How about uh, how about any dehumanization? As I began to think about this, I started thinking about the descendants of David, the Jewish Messiah of the world, and what state he was born into while well, Augustus is in power. And then what setting he chose to give people the right to hear this term from John 1.18, sorry, 1.12, to become sons of God. See, this is what all of the ages were clamoring for. It's what everybody wanted. But when they see something truly divine, they strain so far from it that nobody recognized it. And when they see people truly acting like God because they don't know God, they don't know the sons of God. You know that Psalm 82 says, I have called you all gods. Boy, the New Age churches love that. Not churches, New Age cults love that. I've called you all gods. But you will die like mere men. For you do not look after the widows and the orphans. You do not free the oppressed or loose the chains from those in prison. God wants a group of people that act like him. The problem with all of these other empires is they were gods to themselves and so they're super races were gods to themselves. As I thought about that and the dehumanizing things that had happened, my mind drifted to the Holocaust. In 1933, Hitler comes into power. By 34, he's the sole Fuhrer in Germany. And the Fuhrer means leader. But do you know what the German people referred to him as and how he referred to himself? The father of Germany. The father. Isn't that a title that you've heard in church somewhere? How about that? It's, it's amazing how this spirit permeates everything. Father, I'm the originator of Germany. He, uh, he wrote a book called Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf means my war, like my personal war. And in this book, you guessed it, he began to describe a superior race, a godlike race. 
See, because he needed to be lifted, and to do that, he needed to tell other people that they were better than everybody else too. This kind of self-glorification and emperor status is in, in, in every major empire the world's ever known. In 1861, a guy named Max Mueller, Germans are so smart, Max Mueller said, you know what? There are common linguistic elements in the languages of the world. Have y'all ever heard that? Yeah, we now believe that all languages in the world have a single common root. But in 1861, they didn't think that all languages had a common root. They just thought that Germany, the Greeks, the Persians that we now call Iranians, the Romans, and the Armenians had a common root in language. Amazing thing about all those people, they were all ruling the world. How about that? They all had major empires. You know who they said didn't have a common root in their linguistics? The Semitic people. Oh, and the Egyptians. They didn't like them either. Had something to do with a term they called burnt face. I don't know what they could mean by that. <laughs> Max Mueller said these common languages point to a common ancestry. I know they're kind of spread out. I mean, you don't typically think of Persia and Germany as the same people, but their common language points to a, a common origin. He stopped short of saying there was anything genetic about it. He just said it points that direction. But we had a Frenchman named Vacher de la Puge. What a nice name, huh? He, uh, he invented something that I, I, I couldn't quite say. So I'm going to call it craniology. Okay? That's a, that's a made-up word from your pastor. I get to do that. The pulpit gives you the right. And what craniology said is, you know, you're right. There is a common linguistic element in those people groups. And I also see different genetic features. And the genetic features that I see actually wrote papers on this that people accepted is certain northern European groups among these people seem to have bigger, longer foreheads. They're inherently more gifted. While the Semitic peoples and the colored peoples of the world have shorter foreheads. They're less gifted inherently, genetically even. And this caught on. It caught on. Well, this was a problem for Germany because the height of power, if this were true, would be the Nordic peoples. So Germany produced its own scientist, Gustav Cosina. And Gustav said, look, I, I know it looks like the Nordic people, but what you don't really know is those Nordic peoples started in Germany. They just migrated there. The word Aryan is a group of people that have never existed. It's a mythical race. It doesn't even exist. There is no genetic link. But this was a theory of the time that allowed a man to raise himself to godlike status and create a super race. Then what kind of dehumanizing things happen? It's difficult to even speak about. I'll switch and broke off. Six million Jews, three million Russians killed in just a few years. Did the Messiah bring salvation or did he only bring destruction to the one group of people on the planet that actually are said by Jesus, salvation is from the Jews? What do you think the God of this world is trying to accomplish? Isn't that interesting? One of the things that I thought was neatest about this is, you know, coming from the South, I was familiar with a different kind of racism. One of the things that shot holes in Hitler's theory, I mean, just an amazing thing is it just so happened that in 1936 while he was still garnering power a young black man from Alabama named Jesse Owens beat the tar out of every Russian athlete not Russian German athlete that he competed against in the 1936 Summer Olympics he came over with four gold medals that made it very difficult for Germany to say we're superior because this man was the absolute antithesis of the supposed Aryan it's almost as if God had a hand in that the truth about the super race is something we need to get into. I'm fond of giving you history as we preach. But at some point, we just need to read the Word. Because the Word will shine light on all the rest of history and it will give you eyes that see. Turn to Deuteronomy 26. I'm going to give you three scriptures in Deuteronomy, so stay there when you get there. There. Good, that's one there. Where are the rest of you? There. 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 Super race. 
Y'all all there? Yeah. All right. Listen to verse 19. We're going to talk about a super race. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. High above all the Gevarim, all the people groups. He's going to put you at the top, high above, in honor. What they say about being number one? Everybody's aiming for you. God himself chose a people group. And he said about this people group that he would elevate them above all of the other people groups. That sounds unfair, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound unfair? I mean, would you like it if you're not in that race? Because the most amazing thing about studying the world empires is every super race was different. The super race, in fact, of du jour was whatever race you were. Right? See, you see that shifting in countries now. Right? If one group of people is in power, they're the super race. If the minority that was being oppressed is in power, they're the super race. It's funny how that works. All human beings have a tendency to glorify themselves. They'll even repaint God in their own image. Might make Jesus look like an Aryan. Or if it suits you, an African American. Or it never got there because Buddhism was so strong, but we could have just made him Orient. I mean, does it really matter? It does. It matters because one group of people were told you will be above all of the nations. And this promise gets developed. Turn with me also in the book of Deuteronomy to the 15th chapter. Where were the Shifras and the Puas, by the way, during, uh, during the Holocaust? Where were the people who simply said, I will not do it? You know, I understand when there are fanatical Germans that are real believers that are putting people in gas chambers. It's demented, but I understand it. Hitler actually took people out of prisons for murder, like the homicidal maniacs of his day, and put them in charge of death camps. I get that. You know what's difficult to get? How an average guy stands by and watches this happen. I love our country, but we stood by far too long. By 1941, there was no question what was happening. There were reports of it as early as 1939. Everybody stood by and we watched. How does that happen? Some just did what they were ordered to do. Do you think that alleviates them of responsibility? There's only one Lord. You better decide whether it's you or it's Him. Not putting anybody else in the chain. Your boyfriend's not your Lord. Your husband's not your Lord. Nobody can be your Lord except the Lord. There can only be one God. Only one. You'll pay a price for it. But in the end, like Shifra and Pua, you'll get everything you ever needed. You better decide now. There can only be one Lord. In Deuteronomy 15, y'all there? Let's read that sixth verse. 15, 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. What a strange promise for a nation that has been under the soul of every Gentile empire that there's ever been. This is their destiny, friends. There is an Israel of God that will rule the nations. I didn't say it. God did. I'm not an Israelite. <laughs> In my flesh, I could think, why not America, Lord? Why not wherever? Why not Hispanic folks, Lord? I, they work hard. You know? Why, why not my Vietnamese friends? You know, they're good at poker. You're good at everything else, right? <laughs> but he didn't pick them. Did it? How about Deuteronomy 7 7? Please don't get tired of turning. You need to get this. We went from light, right to left in the Bible. I thought that would be very Jewish. Deuteronomy 7 7. Watch this. The Lord did not set his affection on you. Who's he speaking to? Jewish people. And choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers to bring you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land 
of slavery. You need to understand this. All emperor status and all super race of people had always been based on the superiority of the people. The Jewish claim to the promises of God are based on the mercy of God, not their superiority. That makes them distinct. The other races that have tried to rule the world have tried to rule the world on the basis of self-glorification. The kingdom of God will not work that way. It's not about genetics. Matthew 3.9 says, Do not say to yourself that you have Abraham as your father. God can raise up from these stones descendants of Abraham. It was about more than genetics. It was about obedience. It was about mercy. His choosing, though it's undeserved. My kids know what mercy is. First time that I was ready to really just wear Judah out. I mean beat him good. And I know that offends some people, but it happens in my house. <laughs> Hang around, you might get some too. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I didn't put his hands on the wall. I took off my belt. I said, son, what's going to happen? I'm going to get spanking. I said, yeah, you are. And it's going to be a big one. I said, do you deserve it? Yes, sir. I said, would you like some mercy? Huh? What is mercy? Well, you deserve a spanking and you're not going to get one. I said, you have mercy. He's never forgot that. This people group has received beating after beating after beating, but they will receive the mercy of God. They will. Not because of anything they've done, but because of God's mercy. That was meant to teach you something. You may have been as rebellious to God as could be. You may have been beaten by your slave master and your oppressor, the God of this world, till you think you have no worth left. But if you appeal to the God of mercy, you will be shown mercy. And any people who claim to be His people and mercy doesn't triumph in their life, they're not His people. Now that doesn't mean that we like everything that you do. I don't even like everything I do. It means that you are merited with something that you didn't earn. It was in this manner that Genesis 49 picks up. I'm going to give you a few more scriptures and we're going to close on time because I'm hungry. But I want you to understand what a super race is. Thus far, you could say, well, Eric, you're saying that Jews are a super race. Yeah, I'm kind of saying that, but not really. Nobody can deny that God's blessing is upon the nation. Their birth, their survival, their present day existence is all the testament to the saving power of God. And if you learn to put your hope in that, you'll learn more about your own salvation. Because you only have what you have because of them. And if He doesn't do it for them... There is no hope he will do it for you. If you have a problem with my theology in that realm, buy me a cup of coffee and I will teach you. Okay? There, there are not very many things that I'm going to stand flat-footed on, but you cannot read this book and come away with another conclusion. Unless you're a state church or you've elected an emperor inside and outside the church and you need to dehumanize some people so that you can do what you want to, then you could come to a different conclusion. You could say, no, those people have been replaced by something and we're it. Another super race. Built on self-glorification. It's amazing what history shows you. Are you in Genesis 49? Yes. Would you like to know what it says? Yes. Isn't it good this is not written in a language we don't understand? Verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations will be His. Where was that coming from? Judah. Out of all the people on the planet, there would be somebody coming from Judah and the obedience of the nations and the scepter of God would be His. Now I read you out of Deuteronomy, it was not because these people were super fantastic, terrific, and awesome. It's because they looked needy. God decided to give them mercy. But He made a promise. And if God is true, everybody around you can lie. But God is true. And He said somebody would come from the tribe of Judah that the obedience of the nations would belong to Him. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Ought to be easy to find, right? It's 
the biggest book in the Bible, and it's the second song. Tell me when you're there. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Not anointed two. Not anointed three. Not anointed everybody. An anointed one. There would be one king installed on Zion. One king that the obedience of the nation would be His. The mystery of the Gospel is that that anointed king would let you be an honorary or adopted member of His kingship. That He would let you participate in His divine nature. But make no mistake, the anointed one we are talking about had to come from the Jewish people. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of Yahweh. He said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have become Your Father. Ask of Me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There is a king that has been installed. He is Yeshua, the Messiah. Much of Israel, many, the book of Acts says, ran to their king. Much didn't. Much of the world claims to serve him today and hates his people and therefore his kingship. There can only be one king in Zion. He is either your Lord or he's not. And the best way to find out what kind of tree something is is to taste of its fruit. Mm. It's your job to taste of your life and find out whether the king of kings who will have the obedience of the nation is yours or whether you've become a super race to yourself. Godlike in your self-glorification, choosing what you want when you want it and thumbing your nose at his plan. The king will have the obedience of the nation. In Daniel 2... The 45th verse, he actually goes on and he describes all of the kingdoms that would rule the earth, all who oppressed the Jews, by the way, all who raised divine leaders and had super races, and he said a rock is going to be cut out of a mountain. It will fall upon the last of those kingdoms, and the whole structure will crumble. It will fill the entire earth and have no ending. There is a divine man building a divine race and it will have no ending but the promise that came to an ethnic group of people was not for the ethnic group of people alone it's not based on superiority it's based on obedience of the nations and see the Messiah had to be a Jew but in the Messiah everyone every human being who will be obedient to him can be a son of God this is different than the Egyptians. This is different than the Romans. This is different than every group that's sought to ethnically cleanse and raise somebody's race above another. This is inclusive of every human being who would call on the name of the Lord because it's not based on superiority. It's based on mercy. Well, you can pay a terrible price for thinking too highly of yourself, couldn't you? You could miss the mercy of God. I have two scriptures left for you and six minutes to do it. These are two very good scriptures. Do you want them? Yes. yes. Okay. Isaiah, we're going to be in the 11th chapter. Imagine all the people. I won't sing, but you know, that was a great song, wasn't it? wonder what would have happened if you had read the book and see how to make that happen. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. 
It's a very Hebrew way of saying a descendant of Jesse. This is the house of David in the tribe of Judah. Judah being one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel being a descendant of Shem, the Semitic peoples. Why do you think anti-Semitism exists in the world? Because people are generally opposed to the promises of God. They just don't always understand their own motivation. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From its roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and power. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With righteousness. Everybody that's ever thought... We just get our guy in power. I mean, then it would be good for us. You know? I mean, you could just elect somebody more like you. Then it will fix everything, right? Has it ever done that? Ever? In any empire, anywhere in the world, at any time? People that are not submitted to God do not deal in righteousness. They're gods to themselves. Are we surprised when you see politicians somewhere, maybe not here, but somewhere? Are we surprised when they act with self-interest? God disclosed that in Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4. If you have a break with you and God, you will not treat your fellow man properly. But when somebody is filled with the Spirit of God, the first thing that happens is they judge with righteousness. Hear me. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, you begin to act differently towards your neighbors. What kind of super race do you want to be ruled by? One that is based on their own superiority or one that the currency of the kingdom is mercy? And their submission to their godlike leader means that you get right standing with God. That sounds like a beautiful place, doesn't it? But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Why would you have to say that? Because you know what? The poor of the earth are the shepherds in Goshen always. The poor are those that have no voice, that have no power, that have no way to bring about change. And the people that our God will move you to care about the most are the powerless. What other empire in the world has ever done that? He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will destroy, they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all peoples. This one super emperor, if you will, would not care just about a super race. He uses an ethnic group of people that he's called his chosen and blessed, then includes others into that number to bless all people on the planet. This is not about superiority. It's not about genetics. It's not about favoritism. It's about the God of the universe choosing to use people in the way that he seems fit. Some for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes. By the way, what does it mean to be chosen by God? It means to be persecuted by men. Is that true only for Israel? The New Testament says it's true for you. Unless you figured out a clever theory to get out of it. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day the Lord will reach out and he's going to reclaim his people for yet another time. 
That is an amazing thing. Now what is maybe worth contemplating as we go to eat here is that sounds like a pretty good promise, doesn't it? You'd like to never have to worry your kid will be snake bit? Michelle doesn't want me to eat any more cows. She doesn't. I don't want her to kill any more vegetables. We're talking about a new shalom, a new right standing with God on the earth that is not based on your genetics, it's based on your obedience to His plan. It's not based on just one people group being favored, although they are very favored. It's based on everybody being able to get into that favor. It's not based on your ability to perform. It's based on your ability to admit flaw and ask for help. This sounds like a good thing, huh? This is why the people that heard the good news had great joy. This is why. But you need to know one other thing. The very people that were so favored chose for themselves leaders who saw themselves as better than the average person and saw their race is better than the other races. The people of God, when they act just like the world, it muddies the waters, doesn't it? Those very people came and said, Jesus, we saw you just healed somebody. And in Luke 17, 20, they said, when will the kingdom of God appear? Why did they want it to appear? So that they could be better than everyone else? So that they could show their superiority? So that they could be the head and not the tail? Or did they want it to appear because they understood man's need for mercy? For his need for absolution from guilt? Did they care about the other nations participating in it? Or did they just want to be on top of it? Well, you read the Gospels and I'll let you decide about the leadership. But Jesus looked them in the eye and said, The, careful does, the kingdom does not come with your careful observation. You don't say here it is or there it is. Because it's within you. They missed his point. And so has the church missed his point. The kingdom that Isaiah 11 describes is inhabiting the whole earth starts with each individual's decision to become obedient to the Jewish Messiah as their owner and controller. So let me ask you, does your life proclaim him as owner and controller? Or does it glorify yourself? Does your life esteem your brother's needs higher than your own? Or does it boldly and proudly say, I'm not my brother's keeper? These are the things that a Christian's mind should be occupied with. How can I magnify you? How can I glorify myself less? How can I help my brothers by showing mercy? These are the things that make us unique in the world. And Paul went so far as to say you will shine like a star if you do these things. Friends, that would be a super race of people. A race of people that were truly superhuman because they were supernatural. You've read the stories in the Bible. Was Samson strong? Was Elijah powerful? Was Paul magnificent? Was Moses awesome in speech, deed, power? These were all men who chose to put God's obedience, their obedience to God above their own. For a person submitted to God, and I surely don't mean a Muslim. That's what that word's supposed to mean, another counterfeit religion. For a man submitted to God, everything is possible. You are like a race that is like God. The word calls you gods if you act like him. Go act like him. Be God-like, Christ-like, super race, and magnify your emperor's name, Yeshua. Amen? Amen. You want to eat? Yes. I want to eat. I've been hearing fantastic things about some of the newer couples in the church and their cooking. I have no particular culinary arts, but I am exquisitely talented at eating. Stand and let's join the hands of our friends. If you sit here sometimes and you wonder what my fascination with history or with the Jewish people is, it's not just the people of the book. I want you to understand that I firmly believe that if we learned our lessons from the other empires in the world, mm -hmm. when we saw Hitler moving in certain directions, the church would have taken its stand. Yeah. 
But if the people of God are oppressed, uneducated, powerless, all of those things, or indifferent, a young man with me today that was watching a video about the Holocaust said, do you really think that could happen again? My parents were alive. They were born during the time that it happened the first time. That's not so very long ago. Do you really think it could happen again? Well, the, world, the book says that the world's headed for a time of distress, unequal since the beginning of creation until the time of that distress. Do you really think it could happen again? Well, I tell you what. As long as I'm alive and I will teach my children and my church, God's people will never stand alone again. That's right. Amen. Mighty God, we love you. Our heart can be overwhelmed at the evil that is in the world at times. I can be discouraged in my own participation in it. But Lord, what I choose to focus on and what fills my soul with joy, what wells up in me, is the hope that because of your great mercy, that this planet will change into your image. That the frustration we see all around us will be rolled up like a garment that the sons of God will be revealed and that an age with no more death crying or tears will be unveiled we choose now to live in that reality to walk according to the principles of that age Lord we choose now to act as if you were the king and we are in your kingdom that all the world may know the rebellion's begun and the people of God will conform no longer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.